how do you say, here's $500,000 for watching your friend being lost or your son being killed or your daughter in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. That's all hollow. I think that you're, they're pinning false hope on the hope that somehow he's not going to be able to you know, be in charge of what's going on here because he still has a lot of uh, military cards to play if he so chooses. And uh, this is a long way from over. According to the memo, uh, Detective Jimenez told the investigators for the prosecutor's office, you know, I didn't want to investigate this guy because I got family down in Mexico and I was afraid that they would kill my family. You're listening to Pod Sui, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Heading into the fifth week of their invasion of Ukraine, Russia sending mixed messages vowing to draw troops away from Kiev to focus on the eastern portion of Ukraine before repositioning troops and continuing to carry out attacks near the capital city. U.S. officials are also claiming Russian President Vladimir Putin is getting false intelligence due to some of his advisors fearing retribution from the dictator if they deliver him less than favorable news. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Danny Davis with Chris Renwick. It's hard for me to to really get my head around the, the possibility that Putin doesn't understand how bad things are. But I mean, all you got to do is watch TV. You got to know that. And I can certainly understand there be a tension like I, I would expect that. Because any time that your senior advisors led you to believe that your troops were, you know, a certain level of capability and they aren't, and that the enemy was a certain lower capability and they aren't, I can certainly see you being pretty upset with that. But but look, this is the same guy that went through the, the second Chechen War in 1999-2000 with the, the Georgia War in, in 2000, or, uh, yeah, 2008. And both of those had really, really ugly parts in them. And we're really bad. And, you know, and lots of people were saying bad stuff about Putin then. So he's got some experience dealing with military setbacks. And so I, this is certainly the biggest scale of, of anything that's, that's gone badly uh, for anybody, really, since World War II. But uh, it's not unprecedented. And, and I, I think that people in the West and certainly some of these Pentagon spokesmen and some of these, I think people are making, uh, you know, a bigger deal out of this than, than should be, as though it means something if he's upset, uh, because I don't think it does. I think he's very well aware. He sees the map. He knows how far they've gone and how far they haven't. He's painfully aware of how how the sanctions are biting because he's signing all kinds of executive orders and everything else to try to minimize some of these things. So he's making speeches. So I, I honestly, I just don't buy it. I think that this is people in the West wanting to say, oh, yeah, Putin's bad, and he is bad morally. But uh, I think that you're they're pinning false hope on the hope that somehow – He's not going to be able to, you know, be in charge of what's going on here because he still has a lot of uh, military cards to play if he so chooses. And uh, this is a long way from over. But I, I will lastly tell you, though, uh, they haven't done bad across the board. They're sure. actually doing some things that make sense now. Well, it just reminds me of of uh, that saying some people create the storms and then get upset when it rains. It just feels like if you if you if you spread this disinformation uh, for long enough, you start to buy into it, and and look, uh, these officials are saying that he didn't realize how how poorly the military was doing. He didn't realize some of the losing concepts that they were uh, uh, showing in Ukraine, and, and a breakdown of of information from the soldiers on the ground to his military leaders, and then finally to Vladimir Putin. I I I, I guess 
you know, I, I certainly understand what you're saying. I, I, it would be hard for me to believe that Vladimir Putin doesn't have a pulse on what his military is doing. But this may go. I mean, does it go hand in hand to some of the things that we've heard about, about uh, him isolating himself from a lot of his advisors, his military advisors, his economic advisors? He just maybe isn't as engaged as he once was. I, 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 I guess there's just a lot of things floating out there about this guy that it's hard to know what to believe. Well, and, and just consider this. Now, I'm, I'm, this is this is from a perspective of just an, an, a cold analysis of what is or isn't going on. It's not taking anybody's side. It's not saying anything's moral or immoral. It's just looking at the, the cold, hard facts. This guy is under the most extraordinary pressure of any leader, really, since at least the, the Korean War, I, I would say, uh, and World War II, because of what he's unleashed in the in the, the the extraordinary response by the global community, not just the West, in these sanctions and shutting down business, which is way worse than I think that he in his worst case scenario envisioned. That's putting huge pressure on him that these casualties are much higher than I think that he ever anticipated. Uh, and so the pressure is, is certainly on. That's going to cause anyone to behave differently than they do at peacetime. I mean, I think that's self-evident. But the, the question is, you know, how tough is he going to be? And like I said, he's got uh, you know, three separate military experiences where he's uh, he's got, you know, two of the three were, were went bad for a long time before they finally turned good. So it's not unprecedented for him. But the real issue is going to be what happens on the ground. And right now, uh, they the Russian command, which I, he's the commander in chief, so I assume that's him that's making the decisions. They're actually doing something that makes sense now. They've recognized where they weren't making progress. They've gone to a temporary uh, defensive positions we call hasty defensive positions north of Kiev, Sumy, Kharkov, and then down south uh, north of, of Crimea, and they have not gone after Odessa because they don't have the, the things aren't working their way. Where it is working their way, though, they have put all of their efforts in the Donbas, and right there they actually have a chance to win a pretty substantial battle, and if they win that that could completely turn the tide of the war. So right now, militarily, they're doing something that makes sense. And right now, things are tilting their way. A decision was reached on how to distribute over $2 million in funds to survivors of last November's Oxford High School shooting by an 11-person steering committee after a long and sometimes contentious deliberation period. Attorney Todd Flood breaks down who gets what and how that's decided with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz, and he's joined by a couple special guests of his own. Yeah, so just for clarification purposes, there's right now currently two pots. There's $1.7 million that's been put in by donations and that money is going to go through what is called an allocation process. There's $2 million that the insurance has set aside um, for the school district in similar situations of uh, almost a med pay. That is for reimbursement of any mental health work that uh, has been done by doctors or the like. Uh, you submit your bills. That covers everybody within that school district, uh, all the students there. What are your doggies' names? <laughs> <laughs> so I have I have Cash and Napoleon. So you know, well, uh, welcome to the show, first time callers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, my my uh, my great name that I got from Flint. Anyway, so that two million dollars is going to go into. Uh, making sure that everyone is taken care of uh, with regards to any mental health 
work that uh, they are going through. The $1.7 million in donations, that is going through an allocation process which will be opened up to everybody. All of the students and, uh, and teachers that were in the, in, affected by uh, this, this tragic incident. And you can make it akin to um, what we went through in, my, in Nasser or what we've done in uh, other big mass tort cases. You, you need an attorney that understands what to look for in damages. And uh, you'll put a metric together. Uh, how old was the student? Um, what was the post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosed? What were the signs and symptoms um, that he went through? All of the recovery stages. So there will be, for an example, um, we've used in other cases, let's say five categories or six categories. And that's up on top of the sheet. And in your mind's eye, down on the left side of the sheet, there will be points zero to five. And in each category for damages, a person will be uh, allocated so many points. Those points will be divided into the total pot. And then that person will receive that allocation uh, of the $1.7 million. Now, guys, that's just the beginning. Um, that there is another pot of funds and money that's going to come ultimately from the insurance company itself. The question is, is there enough money? Um, and if there isn't enough money, um, where, you know, are there other funding resources or was this an improper uh, insurance coverage from the beginning? Was there some sort of error by the broker that did not give them enough money? Um, and that's going to get complicated, but uh, the question becomes how much money is in that pot ultimately um, for the insurance, and that's the third pot. So right now you're seeing two. You're seeing donations, and you're seeing an insurance company having set money aside for mental health uh, and taking care of that. It's easy to understand reimbursement for going to see a doctor or a professional. How do you go about trying to assess some sort of number for watching a classmate die or, or, or watching a family member be injured or just being there and going through all of that? It's hollow. It's hollow. Um, there is no dollar amount. Um, it, it might be some semblance of mercy, but it, it's a hollow justice. Uh, how do you, how do you say here's, you know, $500,000 for watching, you know, acts happen, your friend being lost or your son being killed or your, you know, your daughter in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. That's all hollow. But that's where the metrics come involved. And you have, you know, experts in the world uh, that do this. And you have to have the ability to, to assess damages. Um, you know, we, we've done it many times in this country. We did it uh, with Feinstein, did it with the 9-11 victims. Uh, we've done it with the Nasser victims of trauma there. We've done it with the airbag situation. So there, there's experts that can set aside and look at uh, damages and come up with a value. That's the only way it can be done in a fair and honest way. But 
how do you, how do you give a person a check? Yeah. Say, that, that just, it's hollow to me. So uh, it's just some sort of mercy and, and some sort of semblance to move on um, and to have resources to be able to pay for uh, the loss and suffering that you've gone through um, and, and to try to rebuild. But uh, it's, that's uh, where the pros come in. Detroit police are opening an investigation into a retired homicide detective, Moises Jimenez, for throttling two murder investigations out of fear a Mexican drug cartel would kill his family. George Hunter had the story for the Detroit News, and he appeared on the Mitch Album Show with Marie Osborne and Steve Courtney. He's a longtime homicide detective, well-known, worked on a lot of high-profile cases. He was on the first 48 for years, um, so he's well-known in the department. Um, has been a homicide detective for something like 20 years. All this came out in a wrongful conviction claim. There's a lawsuit, one of many pending federal civil rights lawsuits happening. And this all came out in this lawsuit. This guy, Alexander Asar, Ansari, excuse me, was, was, was exonerated in 2019 by the Wayne County Conviction Integrity Unit. They found problems with the case where Mr. Jimenez was the officer in charge of the case. So a memo that was sent as part of the as part of you know this this investigation by the Wayne County prosecutors found that it says that Jimenez admitted to basically looking the other way on evidence that involved a guy named Jose Sandoval in two 2012 murders, including the one which this guy Ansari did five years for, right? Mm. So. It, so they're looking at his innocence claim, and they interview the detective in charge of the case. And according to this memo, the detective says, yeah, you know, I looked the other way. There was some, some DEA agents were looking at this guy named Jose Sandoval, who supposedly is connected to the drug cartel down in Mexico. And uh, according to the memo, uh, Detective Jimenez told the investigators for the prosecutor's office, you know, I didn't want to investigate this Sandoval guy because I got family down in Mexico, and I was afraid that they would kill my family oh. uh so so hmm. the prosecutors exonerated uh mr ansarni in 2019 and they then forwarded their their findings on to detroit police detroit police did their own independent investigation um talked to the federal agents on um, the dea agents who had provided information so it's kind of a long thing so while they were investigating the sandoval drug lord guy who ultimately got convicted of being a drug dealer um, they had tagged his car with his GPS unit, and the GPS unit, according to all these documents I saw, showed that he was near one of these homicides right before, right after. Um. But that information never got to the prosecutors, and they and, and, and instead they focused the investigation on this Ansari, and he's the one who got convicted for it. So now, you know, I you know I asked them, uh, but police say now they've reopened this investigation because about three weeks ago they said they got some new information which says that maybe all this isn't true. Now, they did an investigation before, and I asked the head of internal affairs about this, and he said, well, this new information calls our findings into question. So that's where it stands now. The attorney the, in the lawsuit says they're just saying that to try and win the lawsuit. So, you know, at this point, it's gotten to, you know, once, you know, once, once it gets out of it, you know, that's where it's at now. But, I mean, I asked uh, the head of IA, now, are you looking at any of his other cases? Exactly. Exactly. He was involved in a unit called Red Room. It was Squad 6, and they looked up specifically drug-related homicides, and he was on that unit. 
And I asked him, are you looking at any, did he possibly, you know, a fear of cartel? There's nothing in the Detroit police. The Detroit police, after they got this information from prosecutors, did their own investigation. They sought a warrant from the attorney general's office, and it looks like they denied it because there was a statute of limitations issue. Um, that's what it looks like according to some do- court documents, but the AG never got back to me formally on that. But they, they denied the warrant because, you know, 12 year, years had passed since 2012. Right. But, I, but, but there's nothing in the, in the police document that, you know, when they submitted the warrant, they did their investigation. And then there's nothing in the DPD thing that talks about the drug cartels. And the head of the internal affairs said we didn't – that wasn't a consideration for theirs because their findings didn't corroborate the claim that he had supposedly told. You know, so at that point, it's a he said, she said. The, the prosecutor's document says this detective admitted to it. But the Detroit police say uh, say that that's not true. So, well, George, hindsight being what it is, uh, as it applies to the now retired detective Moises Jimenez, uh, have any red flags come up uh, around some of the cases that he was involved in? And, and let me take it a step further. Now that he is retired, what recourse is there if it's found that uh, mm-hmm. he did not do things properly? Well, that's that is as far as any of his other cases, I'm not aware of any anything else, although that certainly bears looking into. Um, and I will look into it. I, you know, I just got these documents the other day. So this is a moving thing, you know, certainly. And, you know, and, and uh, to, in his credit, I know a lot of people that say this is a really, really good detective, too. So, you know what I mean? I, right. You try to just go into this with an open mind. So I don't you know, there may be more. Um, there may be the, whatever this new information is, I don't know, but it certainly bears looking into as far as the statute of limitations. I don't think there really is anything that could theoretically, you know, if you go down the theoretical road, well, you know, because the, the statute of limitations, I think, is six. We ran into that with the um, it, with the uh, Devante Sanford thing. And there was a statute of limitations on perjury and obstruction of justice and that sort of thing. So I don't know if, it, you know, certainly, he's, you know, uh, he's as it stands now, if the if the results of that investigation don't change the internal police investigation that's ongoing now, uh, he can't get another law enforcement job because he has that tag. You know, they changed the thing where if you resign now, they put a tag on you resigned under investigation. And that's yeah. where it stands. So he can't get another law enforcement job. Um, you know, so that in terms of in terms of legal punishment, though, I'm not aware that, you know, the statute of limitations is passed. Um, George, those, George, really yeah. quickly, because we just have a few seconds very quickly. Was there any basis for his concern about this cartel? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. yeah I mean, or, or did it's quite a cloud to have over your head? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, they do operate in southwest Detroit and, and they're just, you know, I mean, uh, anytime you're dealing with, I mean, I got to be honest with you. When I started to write this story, my wife was like, "Are you sure you want to write this story?" I mean, uh, maybe the cartel. So they do operate in Southwest Detroit. It's it's always a concern. I mean, I don't, I can't get in somebody's head, but okay. I can certainly tell you that. I mean, wow. according to the feds, and we've seen that there's been gangs busted up that have ties to that, and people get killed in that in that game. The school board for the Clover Park School District in Tacoma, Washington, passed a disciplinary policy that takes a student's race into account when determining their punishment by a vote of three to two. Guy Gordon had a roundtable discussion with Lloyd Jackson and Dana Clark on the Paul W. Smith Show. There is plenty of literature that says that African-American kids are punished more frequently and more severely than white kids. But how do you address that? There is a district outside of Tacoma in Washington State that is embracing something called a basically 
ethnically sensitive or culturally responsive discipline, that they are adjusting their discipline and how they discipline a student. They're considering that student's race before they discipline them. At least that's what critics are saying. There are some in the district that say, yeah, that's what we're doing because that's how we think we can make things more equitable. Should race be considered in something like this? Uh, Dave Rieger's with us. We've also got Dana Clark, Lord Jackson joining us this morning for this uh, little roundtable discussion. Have you experienced this as parents that you felt that your child was maybe punished more severely when you see, especially in, in, in districts where your kids have been? Not necessarily understanding uh, both of you. Your, your kids are angels. Right. Let's, that's let's what I was going to say. I've never kids are perfect <laughs> and have never done anything wrong. Um, no, but uh, not necessarily uh, in the district uh, I'm in, but I've seen it happen. And just as a kid myself uh, in, in school, I, I've seen it happen where African-Americans were dealt with more harshly uh, than their counterparts of other races. Um you know, now my son got into a fight one time. Uh, he was being bullied. The guy was bullying him. They fought, uh, and they both were kicked out. You know, <laughs> right. and, and and nobody said, "Well, okay, because you're black and he's not, that you know, you you get kicked out and this one doesn't." No, you know, the rule is, you fight, you get kicked out for three days. Yeah, no matter what. And to me, that's the way to do it. You know, whatever the school rule is, yes. if you violate that rule. You pay the consequences, and whatever. That's the way you solve the equity issue. You have, yes. just like a judge, you have a set of guidelines, you have your sentencing requirements, and yeah, right. you use them, and you don't consider race. Right, that should not even be in there. And then it just seems like they're going from one extreme to the other extreme now. Well, and I'm trying to be sensitive to the idea of the soft racism of low expectations. Yeah. I know a situation in a private school, this was several years back, where a an African-American student F-bombed the teacher, mm-hmm. uh, told her to F off. Mm-hmm. They took him to the office. Mm-hmm. The office said, well, within the African-American culture, this is not unusual in the home. And this is this may be considered acceptable behavior. And we have to consider that. And, and so the, the administrator did not back the student. They did not back the teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, now you set... So you got different standards for different kids yeah, for no. behavior based on that's and that's no. what it sounds like they're considering in Tacoma with a culturally responsive discipline that may be adapted to individual student needs in a culturally responsive manner. I don't like this at all. It's no. and they're saying and they're saying you know the the the, the people in Washington are saying well no that's not what we're doing but it is what you're doing in this <laughs> It is exactly what you're doing. And, you know, you're going to say in your mind, no, that's not what we're doing. But when it comes down to the discipline, when it happens, that's going to be what you're going to do. Well, and isn't it, again, another form of racism Mm -hmm. when you don't discipline the child? If you're not, no matter what the race may be. Mm -hmm. That's right. The absence of discipline is also not only creating an environment that's not conducive to learning, you are also setting lower expectations for that child and depriving them of corrective behavior Mm -hmm. that could make them a better student and a better person. And this just makes more division to me. Exactly. This just makes it even because each 
uh, culture or or you're going to say, OK, I'm going to uh, punish a female student now different from a male student because, you know, she could be going through something at, you know, a certain time of the month or what. You, you know, it just it makes it worse. You you should punish the punishment. Should well, be, wait a minute. That, <laughs> I know. Don't write. That, that don't write better, and don't call. That's been operative in my household <laughs> for <laughs> But see, you can't. What I'm saying is no matter a female student, male, black, white, yellow, cat, dog, it should be the rules should be the rule and it should be across the board. There's been a lot. There's a lot of husbands out there right now that that said, I've been told him, look, don't pee me off this morning because I'm having a hot flash. Okay, don't mess with me. Look, discipline kids. It's in their best interest. It is. Establish standards. Stick to them. For everyone. For everyone. Yes, across the board. Across the board. Don't don't adjust. NASA astronaut Mark Vandehei returned to Earth after a record-breaking 355 days in space. Vandehei, who was in space with two Russians, was briefly used by Russia for leverage with the Soviet nation threatening to abandon him in space while they were at war with Ukraine and at odds with the United States. But the astronaut and his two colleagues touched down safely in Kazakhstan on Wednesday. Former astronaut and record holder himself, Jerry Leninger, on the Guy Gordon Show with Chris Runway. How long were you? I, 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 I think I read 143 days. Does that sound right? Yeah, that was my yeah, that was my cumulative time. But yeah, I oh, had the record okay. for an American man at that time, and those records are meant to be broken. And yeah, um, I'll tell you what, though, if I were uh, Mark, I would have lobbied for ten more days. You <laughs> might as well make it a year, right? <laughs> so how long? How long were you up there at one time? What was your longest? I was up there about four and a half, five months, and okay. again, that was on the Mir space station. And uh, it's a little different because communication on ISS is a whole lot better than the old beat up Russian. Sure space station so it was a tough four or five months uh but little by little we learned you know from skylab they were up there you know five weeks four weeks kind of thing and little by little you learn you do long duration flights yeah and it definitely takes a toll on the human body though so i want to talk about that but but i want to take it back just a little bit so when you get up there um how long does it really take you to kind of acclimate? Because I would imagine there's an acclimation period. So when you, when you get Absolutely, up there, Chris. how yep. long does it take yep. to kind of get used to everything? You know, even if you're an experienced flyer, a lot of people get the space motion sickness for the first few days. Uh, but beyond that, I would say about one month into it, when I was up there for 30 days, I saw a transition take place between my crewmates and I, two Russians at that time, uh, where it felt you wake up one day and you feel like you've lived there all your life. Uh, you feel three-dimensional, for example. You don't see floors, walls, ceiling. You just understand it as volume. Wow. Uh, I can be upside down talking to you right now. I feel perfectly fine. I feel perfectly fine flying without even thinking about it. So I think the magic number is about 30 days into it, and I saw the same adaptation take place in my two Russian cosmonaut crew members. Interestingly, of course, in the days of our shuttle flights, they were 10, 11, 12 days at most. And I don't think most astronauts ever fully acclimated to space the way uh, I did or the more, you know, recently the long duration people do. Um, and then conversely, when you get back home, um, I, I got to imagine you feel I don't know. I don't know. What do you what do you feel like when you get back? Yeah, you feel very heavy. Uh, things like uh, turning your head. You feel like you're doing backflips tight and fast. Uh, after a year in space, almost, uh, I'm sure Mark's going to 
uh, be very gingerly. Uh, Chris, if you told me, for example, stand on a three-foot platform and jump off, I would say, and you give me $1,000, I'd say forget it, keep your $1,000, because <laughs> you just have this feeling that your bones and your muscles will not react properly, and they don't. You've got a uh, kind of a modified homeostasis with your tissues. Uh, the, yeah, bone loss during that time, and uh, you sort of have amplified sensory information when you first get back. So your inner ear is now feeling that gravity, and again, you get that tumbling feeling, for example. And so he's going to be off, I would say, for at least a month. In my case, it was probably a year and a half afterwards where when I was riding my bike one day, one revolution to the next, bam, all of a sudden I said, wow, I feel normal again. Really? So it was nothing, yeah, nothing anyone could measure, but I had sort of a neuromuscular disconnect, Hmm. and it just didn't feel right. My strength looked okay, all the things looked okay, but it kind of felt like a a pitcher that can't locate over the plate. You know, he can still fire the fastball, but just can't locate. Some fine sensory problem I had, and a year and a half, all of a sudden, bang, I'm back to normal, started running triathlons and things I'd done in the past. So it takes takes quite a bit to recover from being a spaceman back to being an earthling again. <laughs> right. Um, well, I, I would have, you know, and I can't remember, and I wish I would have looked this up before I asked this question. Um, but, but I think there was an astronaut, I can't remember who it was, but they, they experienced some sort of like almost cellular change, like a permanent cellular change. And maybe I'm making this up. Maybe I'm, I'm. Maybe I watched a movie and I'm conflating it with real life. But 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 what 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 yeah. long term ramifications or, or perhaps even permanent changes uh, take place? Uh, maybe not from you from being there for for about five and a half months, but for somebody who's been there for you know darn near a year, what what can that yeah, look I, like permanently? I think anything in the months, you know, over a month, I think you get kind of the same effects. But I think the permanent, for example, within the eye. We're having some changes, pressure changes, uh, retinal potential detachments. Uh, They follow it very closely. I go for flight physicals every year. There's a longitudinal study following up every astronaut that's ever been to space. And that's, for example, one of them where there's some actual tissue change taking place uh, within the eye. And it happens acutely also. So when an astronaut would come back on shuttle, They'd sometimes give the pilot who has 20-20 vision, they'd give him five pairs of glasses because they're not sure how the vision's going to change. Mm. And so he'd try on different glasses before landing day and pick the one that worked best and then land the shuttle. And so there are some of those changes. Probably the, the long-term one is the radiation exposure. And, of course, I have a much higher cancer risk than the average person. I'm way beyond the limit of a nuclear worker, for example. Mm -hmm. And Mark's going to have the same thing. So you've got some long-term health risks. Um, What do you think um, we can learn about uh, what the human body can endure in space um, with, with these kind of extended trips? Yeah, one one thing I think we learn is how resilient we are and how we can adapt to just about anything. Um, and the human physiology does the same thing. The only showstopper is that bone decalcification. Everything else seems to kind of plateau out. You find that new homeostasis I was talking about. But the bone loss kind of continues on, and you're essentially, say, after a six-month mission, uh, most astronauts, even in spite of countermeasures, you know, getting on treadmills and things like that, in spite of that, there's sort of like a decade of an elderly person 
uh, with osteoporosis losing bone mass. So that's that's a potential showstopper going to Mars. Dello for Podsui this week. For full episodes or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.